In today's conversation, you're going to hear Daniel and me speaking to none other than Professor A.C. Grayling. Professor Grayling has um, a lot of great points to make in this conversation, and I really admire the way that he shares and runs things down, breaks things open for us, and also links things together. Um, he doesn't just answer our questions, he helps us to see the bigger picture, um, and, and at least how he views the world, how he makes sense of these questions, and how he sees them, um, yeah, being almost anchored to each other in very interesting ways. Um, I hope you, the listener, can see that and enjoy that, and uh, yeah, get a lot from this conversation. If you're watching this on YouTube, please don't forget to hit like, subscribe, and then hit that notification bell so you'll be made aware of any other videos that we release in due course. And for everybody, enjoy this conversation. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion, and life. This podcast is all about listening. We want people to share their reasons for faith or their reasons for non-belief so that we can better understand what has or has not convinced somebody of the claims that different religions profess. This is a journey, it's not a destination, and I'm really excited to have you listening with us each week as we delve into different viewpoints from different parts of the world to try and uncover the truth. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to When Belief Dies. Uh, I'm Daniel and I'm joined today by uh, Sam. Sam, how are you doing? Doing very well, mate. Doing very well. Yeah, good to be here. Great. Uh, and we're also joined, uh, we're very glad to say, by um, Professor AC Grayling. Hi there. Hi, there, Sam and Daniel. Nice to meet you both. Fantastic. Yes, um, Anthony, we're really, really glad to have you on uh, the podcast. And I think it'd be really great just to uh, obviously, I'm sure many of our listeners will be aware of you and your work, but it, I think it'd be really interesting to understand uh, just a little bit uh, about you, uh, who you are, and uh, your work. Sure. Well, perhaps it's uh, relevant to say something about um, my, my own background in relation to religion. Uh, I, I was very fortunate to be brought up in a completely unreligious household. I mean, I suppose my parents might, you know, officially have been Church of England or something like that, but they didn't have an interest in religion. We had no religious observance at home. We didn't go to church. And my first encounter with uh, religion was uh, when I went to school. And when I did go to school, of course, there were Protestants and Catholics and Muslims and Jews. Um, and so they, they kind of licorice all sorts of, of different things that people were and what they did on Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays just made it seem a bit like the kind of difference between liking rugby and liking football, you know, and it didn't really bother me very much. Um, but a couple of things happened that, that um, were also in their way fortunate, I suppose. So I went to a prep school, a boarding school, at which my brother, who was considerably older than I, was uh, in the very top form when I was in the very first form. And, and he was a, a prefect and, and rather a big hero in, in the school, um, justifiably so, because he was always a very good sportsman. But he one day caught me doing something that, that I shouldn't have been doing, you know, fiddling about um, reading during prep or something like that. And as a punishment, he um, demanded that I learn by heart the first page of a book that my grandmother had just sent me as a present. 
And in fact, he, when he caught me in this misdemeanor, he actually had the book under his arm and said, well, okay, your, your punishment is you've got to learn the first page of this book. Now it happened that the book in question was a book of Greek mythology. And, and by the next day, I could have quoted verbatim the entire book to him. I was so completely and utterly absorbed by it. It was just wonderful. I loved the stories and I loved everything about it. See, I was about eight at the time, okay? So, you know, the, the, um, the sheer delight of, of that whole thing has been a, a lifetime possession in a way, because um, very, very much uh, that has to do with classical antiquity and ancient Greece and Greek philosophy and all the rest of it, uh, you know, has, has been a sort of permanent uh, um, uh, delight. But when I, we went to our big school, um, the sort of big boarding school, we had to go to chapel every day, which and it was a very short uh, chapel sessions of 10 minutes each. So nobody paid any attention to them. We were trying to finish our prep and all that kind of thing anyway. So we didn't bother to listen. And so one day we had a new chaplain at the school and he was a bit of a, an evangelist, uh, evangelical type, I suppose is the expression, uh, a, a bit of a sort of revivalist. And there is a collect in the Church of England, which goes something like this, uh, not, not exactly like this, but something like, oh Lord, open thou our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may truly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. By the way, a little footnote here, I'm reminded of there was one guy called Julius Hare back in the 19th century, um, who was, uh, I suppose, an agnostic, but he would insist that all his servants in his big country house would have to come to prayers every day. But he took the Book of Common Prayer and he inked out all the and bits of worthily magnify thy holy name and praise be the Lord and so forth. Because he said, uh, no gentleman likes to be praised to his face and, and we're definitely not going to do that to the deity. <laughs> so, so I don't suppose it was very much left in the prayer book after that. But anyway, so he said, there we were at chapel at school. Oh Lord. And, and this chaplain, um, he, he, he uttered this prayer as follows. Sort of, oh Lord, you know, the real revivalist thing. Open thou our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Inspiration, the breathing in. Yes, absolutely, because this is what, you know, uh, and the whole uh, sort of tradition thought that the muse was inspiring people and breathing the secrets of poetry and what have you. So I went up to see the chaplain afterwards and I said, um, okay, this Christianity business is it. Give me something to read. Now, I have to tell you, I was about 14 at the time and a, a bit of an earnest SWAT type, you know, <laughs> you can imagine. So I said, give me a reading list. So he gave me this big, long reading list, which is quite imaginative, actually. It included uh, Bishop Robinson's book, Honest to God, which was, you know, how to be a Christian without really believing in it. Um, Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, about, you know, the universal compassion of the, of, of the person who is so derelict that he loves even the... Uh, ancient toothless prostitutes uh, sitting in the, on the, in the gutter. Um, the uh, Epistle to the Romans, which is allegedly the great converting epistle of Christianity and blah, blah. So that school holiday, I read all this stuff, got back to school, I went to see the chaplain. I said to him, I've read everything you've asked me to read and I have a question for you. I said, how could you believe this stuff? I mean, I was really genuinely puzzled because because I said to him, you know, I've had, look, look, here's the story, right? God makes mortal maiden pregnant. She gives birth to this sort of egregious character who does various things, including going to the underworld and coming out again. So I've heard this story dozens of times. Greek mythology and all the Eastern mythologies are full of it. Zeus, lucky chap, was always making 
mortal maidens pregnant. And they're always giving birth to heroic figures like Hercules and so on, who go to the underworld and come out again. What's so special about this one? How can you believe it? And he said, every morning when I wake, I pray, oh Lord, I, I, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. So I said to him, so you don't really believe it either. And, you know, this is such a theme, isn't it? It's such a theme that, that you've got to have this thick Chinese wall between rationality on the one hand and believing something on the other hand. And I must say, what, what it did do was it kind of sparked an interest in me in thinking about why people want to, to have faith, why they need it, how they're able to, you know, uh, accept a set of doctrines and uh, even indeed in some respects try to live by them. But it became uh, uh, obvious uh, quickly enough that the only people who are really sincere about their, their religion are fundamentalists, people who accept the literal truth of their scriptures and act on them. And that, you know, sort of mainstream religious believers are cherry pickers. They, they cherry pick the bits that they can live with. They don't stone, you know, gay people to death, thank God, anymore. Uh, and they, they don't put us to death because we don't go to a temple or, or synagogue or church on the Sabbath. And so, you know, the whole thing is, is a kind of mess. And you begin to look at the reasons why religion is supported by secular authorities in society as a way of maintaining control. Why, for example, Church of England runs so many primary schools in, in our country uh, is because um, the, 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 there is a belief to some extent at any rate that some sort of vague religion is going to stop you from rioting or doing terrible things. And um, it, it's so, just to put a bottom line on it, it's a kind of big con. <laughs> and that was something which, which uh, um, came to seem to me apparent reasonably early on. That's, that's really interesting. And obviously, uh, yeah, quite studious for a 14-year-old. I, I don't think I was <laughs> uh, quite asking the same questions. But um, yeah, I guess I'm really interested in terms of, you know, you sort of, uh, sort of pulled apart sort of the more fundamentalist uh, types of religious beliefs and those are, that are more in the mainstream. I guess I would just be curious to know, you know, you've sort of labelled it as um, sort of the, a con there. Is that true across the board? Uh, do you think that religion adds some value to people's lives? Are there aspects of religious beliefs that you think are positive? Or is it a case of actually, no, all of this doesn't make uh, doesn't make sense, and therefore, you know, is it a case of we should strip it all out, um, or are there still things within it that need to be extracted and held onto as as good golden nuggets that we've developed along the way? Well, I think we need to take a step back from from talking about uh, uh, religion as such and put it into the class of things to which it belongs, which is namely ideologies. And uh, if somebody accepts an ideology, which is a, a way of thinking, a way of seeing the world, uh, a, a set of guidelines as to how you're to act in the world, then what, what one thing we notice about ideologies is that they can motivate both good and bad. So, for example, Stalinist ideology had, at least as part of it, the idea that there was going to be common ownership of the means of production and, uh, you know, a joint endeavor by society, which was putatively classless and so on. And you could argue that there are some good aspects to that. And then Stalinist purges and, and uh, lack of freedom of expression and so forth, you can regard as negative things about it. 
Now, when, when people point to the beautiful music and the wonderful buildings and the great art, which has come out of religion, my response to that is to say, beautiful buildings, great art, wonderful music have come out of secular motivations as well. It doesn't, you know, and, and it's also the case, of course, that terrible and wicked things have been done for non-religious reasons, wars and persecutions uh, and the like. Although I'm afraid to say, just as a kind of historical fact of the matter, it's usually religion which is involved in, in those aspects of things, but, but not exclusively, obviously. So when one asks about the good and the bad, uh, one can point to things which are good, but, but their being so is not exclusively the province or um, the, the source, uh, that religion is exclusively the source of them. The source of our good and bad, everything good and bad, everything creative, uh, everything kind, everything evil and ugly, is us, is we, human beings, human nature, and the kinds of conditions that we impose on ourselves in society. You only have to go to a zoo and have a look at how unhappy an animal is cramped up in a cage to wonder, you know, isn't there some aspect of this in human life, in the sorts of pressures we induce on ourselves in our social habits and, and circumstances that produce some of the evils of the human condition. But then also, of course, even in Auschwitz, there was kindness and there was affection and there was love. Good can flourish anywhere and in any condition in the world. But that's, as I say, because of us, because of human beings. So it's the reason why I say, let's take a step back and not ask the question, uh, aren't there some good things about religion? Because you know the answer is gonna be, there are some good things about Stalinism, but that's not to the point. The, 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 the point is that the good and the bad are human things and not particularly to do with ideologies. The ideologies potentiate them. The ideologies can, can uh, divert resources. I mean, think back to medieval times. Think about how much time, effort, and wealth went into building a great cathedral in a medieval town or city. A huge uh, redirection of resource uh, and energy in the name of, of something, in the name of an ideology that everybody not merely did, but had to sign up to because you know you had on threat of being punished if you didn't believe, or, or, or at least if you weren't orthopractic, you know, uh, behaved as if you believe. So um, you, you, you can see how uh, ideologies can direct resources and make people do things, but it's not the ideology. Ultimately, it's the, it's the human beings themselves. find this space to be absolutely fascinating it's um it's it's really kind of scary and incredible to think that various ideologies across time have um basically captured people's imaginations unified people in some direction um and basically push things forwards or backwards depending on how you want to view positive and negative events but i kind of wonder do you do you do you think it's just human nature then to kind of um almost desire that sort of um i guess firm answer that framework upon which people can build things in because i know whenever i speak to christians about sort of stepping away from christianity that they, they they almost look at me puzzled it's like i don't have a a framework anymore upon which to make sense of this world and to and to, and to live things um in in a healthy moral like 
morally good way. They they kind of wonder where where do these things reside then, um, and I kind of like try obviously try and explain to them that you know morals don't need to be rooted within a god for them to be there. Like, we we can we we can have morals for many many other ways and, and and reasons, and I've got my arguments for that as well. But I just I just love your 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 take, Professor Grayling, on on the idea of um, kind of frameworks and and humanity's desire to put frameworks over people groups. Yes, it's a very important point. This, by the way, we will come to the question of morality and, and ethics in a bit because it's obviously a very important issue. But you're quite right. Um, human beings need uh, a framework of explanation. They've got to be able to fit things into some sort of schema. We all like a story. We have this, you know, impulse to, to narrative. We want to know about the beginning, the middle, and the end, where we go, what it all means, and what it's all for. And indeed, the very roots of religion uh, lie in this impulse, because in, in my view, religion started as a kind of proto-science. It wasn't religion at all. It was a, an attempt to provide some kind of explanation. And we can do a, a Nietzschean genealogy here. We can go back and, and, and we can reconstruct the way that our very earliest ancestors might have thought when they, they uh, observed natural phenomena and wanted to try to give some account of it, what resource did they have? Well, their chief resource was their own experience as agents. You pick up a stone, you throw it into the pond, the pond making this a splash. You did that. You were the causal origin of that. So there must be an agent involved in the thunder, the lightning, the wind, the, the earthquake. The, the, these are things that could, could only be explained by them then with their resources in terms of agency. So this was a very naturalistic explanation. It was kind of proto-scientific. And you may even regard uh, ritual and um, you know, observance and sacrifice as being a kind of proto-technology because it was an effort to try to, to influence or, or to uh, deal with these forces to get them on side or to stop them from doing harmful things to you. And no doubt dreams of you know, fevered states or eating a magic mushroom by mistake, or something which is fermented in your backpack, you know, without you realizing it, and, you, and, and you're sort of, you know, drunk. Um, you, you might even think that you encounter these agencies in those altered states of mind. And it wouldn't have taken much imagination at all, as uh, human groups became more organized, that those people who thought, uh, and I'm pretty sure they would have been the blokes, you know, in the tribe, who thought, if I can persuade the others that I've got a, you know, a line to these agencies, I'm going to get all the girls and the money. You know, it's, it's just a, a really powerful position to be in society. And you can see how the secular authorities might find it very useful uh, either to suborn the, the spiritual or to be allied with the spiritual because you have an invisible policeman. You've, you've got a, a way of, of uh, organizing society, just as I said earlier about Church of England and the primary schools, same basic idea. But all this relates to the framework point. It gives us, it gives us a, a framework. Now, here's the thing. You can tell anybody the major doctrines, the major narrative, the beginning, the middle, and the end, uh, what it all means, of any offered by any religion in less than half an hour. It's got to be simple. It's got to be straightforward. It's got to be pretty basic. Now, it takes a bit longer than half an hour to understand physics and, and know something about cosmology and so on, which is why the deeper, the richer, the more complex view of our world and the kind of frameworks that we can um, uh, adopt on the basis of our best, most disciplined investigations of it uh, are, are sort of hard to understand. And, and, you know, there are even people themselves, scientists, a few 
who cling on to the religious view of things because of its completeness and simplicity. It has a kind of, you know, it, it, it provides us with a, with a finished story. And people are afraid of open-endedness and of unanswered questions and of uncertainty. And uncertainty and unanswered questions are the very lifeblood of science, which is, and scientists find, most scientists find them exciting. Yeah, that's so, that's so helpful. And I think um, it's, it's, it's fascinating, especially when you look at it from like an agent perspective, as you mentioned, throwing the stone into the, into the pond or whatever and seeing the splash and the ripples and, and understanding that there are um, agents, us, ourselves are agents, there are agents outside of us, other people. And, and then, yeah, obviously we can kind of try and like um, transplant that into other areas within the world that we, that we see things when we witness things and thunder lightning, as you've already mentioned. Um, I mean, I would, I would love um, if it's okay with Daniel as well to kind of push a little bit more into that sort of, into the morality side and the ethics side. Cause I know um, we, we have Christians that listen to the podcast as well as atheists and people in between just trying to journey this stuff out. Um, and one, one of the, the, the absolute massive questions that which we keep going back to is, is, is morality how can you have any moral system or an ethical system without some sort of divine moral lawgiver essentially and um, that kind of uh, yeah underpins it to begin with surely if you take away the moral lawgiver the whole thing collapses and daniel and me have had back back and forth with people about this before but professor grading i'd absolutely love to get your take on that sure now this of course is really a crucial matter uh, and actually we get a very nice segue into it if we round off that story that I was just telling about the idea of agency, because again, thinking genealogically about uh, you know, how, how these ideas originated, we, we, we can think that uh, as our ancestors came to a, a more empirical, better understanding of, of nature and of how nature works, then the, the, the fact that they had imputed agency to everything in nature. I mean, think of Greek mythology. The dryads are the spirits of the trees and the nymphs are the spirits of the streams. And Hephaestus is under the earth and Poseidon is causing the earthquakes. Zeus is throwing the lightning bolts. So everything in nature has an agency associated with it. But as that understanding of nature got better and better, so the gods, you notice it's a really extraordinary thing. The gods got fewer in number and further away. So they, they, got, they got away from being in the trees and streams and they went to mountaintops. You know, the, 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 the Jewish people of the Old Testament saw their God in a burning bush on a mountaintop and they were directed by a pillar of smoke um, during the day. Probably Yahweh was a, a volcano God for, for the very early Jewish people because it was all associated with mountaintops and mountaintops were holy places. The Olympian gods were on the top of Mount Olympus. And by the way, Mount Olympus wasn't actually climbed to the very peak until uh, uh, 1912, just over 100 years ago, oddly. Anyway, but when people did eventually get to mountaintops, there weren't any gods there. So where did they go? Sort of into the sky. And they were still getting fewer and fewer in number. Now there's only one left or three, depending upon your miraculous arithmetic, you know. But they've got further away, higher up. And, and now that is, they're not even up, because now that we know the world is round, they're sort of beyond space and time altogether. So they've, they've kind of been sort of vanishing away and reducing a number, which is an interesting fact about them, okay? Parallel with that, however, is the fact that from being principles of explanation of natural phenomena, uh, as we understood natural phenomena more and more, the idea that we have to propitiate them, sacrifice to them, pray to them, have rituals like, you know, the equivalent of not stepping on the cracks in the pavement in case something bad happens. You know, you're going to have these rituals and taboos. This transferred itself from trying to control the rain and the wind and the lightning to 
things that we must do in society because society must behave itself, otherwise the gods will be angered. And so all the taboos and the rituals came to associate themselves with what we think of as morality. If you look at um, the uh, um, instructions and rules and so on in, in the Old Testament, there are several hundred of them. And, and they're not all of them moral. They're about, you know, not telling lies or, or cheating on your spouse or anything, but they're about what you can and can't eat and when and, and uh, what you must wear on your head and your arm and, and so forth. So there was a mixture of ritualistic and, and taboo and moral um, prescriptions there. And bit by bit, as religion ceased to be metaphysical, that is explaining nature, it became more and more a question of more of social behavior, moral behavior. And it is only actually the young religions of the world, Christianity and Islam, which are entirely uh, about um, uh, morality. So now we've got our, our segue. Now, now we're on the cusp of talking about, about morality. And I must begin by distinguishing between ethics and morality. They're two different things. They're connected, but they're different. You can tell that they're different by looking at the etymology of the terms. The word ethics comes from an ancient Greek word ethos, which means character. And um, ethical reflection is an attempt to construct an answer to the challenge. What sort of person should I be? How should I live? What values should shape and color my life? That's the ethical challenge. Morality is a much narrower thing. It's about interpersonal behavior, obligations, duties, keeping faith, uh, telling the truth, and so on. And in fact, the origin of the word moral comes from um, a coining by Cicero. When Cicero was bringing the Greek debate uh, about ethics into the Latin um, conversation, and he looked around for a, a word that, that would cover the bits that he was interested in. And he took, he coined from a, a, a Latin expression, mos moris, plural mores, which we still use in English. And it actually means custom, customs, habits, manners, etiquette. And, and that is, is where this idea of morality comes from. Now, moralities change. You know, but, but, uh, um, sort of back in the puritanical part of the um, 17th century, even the theatres of London were closed down. This is immediately after the age of Shakespeare. It's astonishing to think how powerful the Puritans were. But then in the Restoration period, you know, at the Libertine Age, if you've ever read the poetry of, of uh, uh, well, I mean, you know, the, 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 um, it was kind of Liberty Hall, like, like the 1960s. They say, if you remember the 1960s, you weren't there. But actually, I do, I do remember. So then the 18th century was fairly sensible. Victorian age was very repressive. The uh, post-Second World War was very liberal. We're now going back into a more oppressive age again. So moral outlooks swing backwards and forwards and change. It used to be immoral for there to be homosexuality. Now, you know, it's accepted as something which is, at, at least in metropolitan societies, as, 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 as fine. Uh, it used to be dreadful to have sex out, out of wedlock or children out of wedlock. Now it's just a, a commonplace in society. So you can see moral attitudes change. But the great ethical question, how should I live? What sort of person should I be? That never changes. That's a demand that, that is with us always. Now, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire with the Edict of Thessalonica in 380 AD, 380 CE, as we now say, and issued by the Emperor Theodosius I. That's towards the end of the fourth century. 
go back to the fifth century BCE, so we're talking 800, you know, getting on for a thousand years beforehand, to Socrates, to Plato, to Aristotle, to Stoicism, to Epicureanism. These were rich, deep philosophical outlooks about the good and well-lived worthwhile life, about the deepest ideas of, of uh, uh, ethical principle, courage and prudence and wisdom, justice and honor. Nothing to do with religion or whatever, not the prescriptions of any gods or no threat of punishment in hell if you didn't obey them. In fact, the ancient Greeks had this wonderful idea, the idea of hamartiae, which is that if you do something wrong, if you betray a principle, if you are dishonorable or tell a lie, it's like firing an arrow at a target and you miss the target. So what you do is you take better aim next time. That's, that's their view, not, not the view of sin which stains your soul forever and kind of damn you to hell, but the fact that, that uh, the ethical life is a life striving to, to, to be a, a person, the kind of person that you want to be. And because we are social beings, that means trying to achieve good relationships with others. In fact, I'm, I'm a humanist with small h as well as a big h, so I will declare an interest. I'm a vice president of British Humanists uh, um, uh, Society. And humanism, which has its roots in the ethical outlook of uh, classical antiquity, is the view that the, the focus of value in life is between birth and death. And it, it relates to how we live our lives and because we are social beings, how we relate to others, because at the very heart of good lives are good relationships. And this means that we must approach others. In fact, there's a marvelous remark by um, Emerson, the American transcendentalist uh, writer, who said, we should give other people the, 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 the same courtesy that we give a painting, namely the courtesy of a good light. That when we meet somebody, treat them with sympathy, with generosity, with respect, until, or unless they overstep a mark and they, and they do something stupid or, or, or bad, uh, you know, you, you don't tolerate that, obviously. But a generous, sympathetic approach to, uh, to human beings, a respect for their diversity uh, and, and complexity, the fact that each human being is an entire world, you know, they've all got parents and siblings and they've all wept and they've all laughed and they've all got hopes and ambitions and stuff. And, and to acknowledge that and to greet other people as worlds like that is a, is a, is a wonderful way to behave towards them. In my view, the, the humanist uh, outlook is, since it is available to anybody and everybody in the world, since if we could just junk religion altogether and we could all become humanists, we would all be much nicer to one another and the world would be a much better place as a result. But when Christians and others say, well, you can't have morality without religion or you, you, know, you, can't, you can't be a good person without religion, I'm sorry to say religion makes people much, much worse sometimes than you would ever be if you were serious about your humanistic outlook. And I guess that's, uh, I guess for myself and Sam, obviously former Christians and living in amongst uh, still many friends, family who are Christians as well. How, how can we work through some of that, 
that humanist outlook in our engagement with uh, with these people who have a completely different outlook. Uh, as you say, like they have this completely different understanding of the metaphysics of the world and God's existence and things like that, but also then hold to a different ethic uh, and have these different values. How can we negotiate in that space and try and work through to, to some sort of level of common ground? And, you know, can Christians or Muslims or people of other religious beliefs still be humanists? Or are these two things sort of mutually incompatible? Well, a couple of things to say about that. The first one, rather briefly, you may have come across what's called the euthyphro problem. And there's a dialogue by, by Plato where he asks the question, is such, such a thing good because God requires it? Or is God good because he, he or she observes this thing X? You know, if, if things are good or, or bad because God says so, then if God said that murder and rape are good, would they be good? Or is God good because there is an independent moral law that has nothing to do with what God wants or wills? Now you can see the dilemma there, can't you? So one question that we ask people of faith is whether uh, something like, you know, respecting others or being kind or uh, helping the poor or uh, the suffering, whether uh, they wouldn't do it unless they were religious or that these things wouldn't happen, that ordinary natural human feeling wouldn't exist uh, unless there were uh, a religious injunction to do so. And of course, the answer would be no. So this brings me to my second point. Some years ago, I produced a thing called The Good Book, a secular humanist uh, Bible, I, I called it, which I modeled uh, in, in its structure on the Bible of religion. And this was the result of thinking years and years ago, more than 30, nearly 40 years ago, when I was a student, I was thinking, look, um, generally speaking, ethical stroke moral outlooks have one of two sources. One is divine command, that there is a deity or a set of deities and they demand of us something. Or on the other hand, a humanistic foundation, a recognition of the complexity and fragility of the human condition and uh, the, our need to think our way into living lives that are good and flourishing and worthwhile just on those grounds. And, and I thought to myself, God, you know, if only, you know, the, the way that the Bible of religion is made, it's made by taking lots and lots of different texts and weaving them together and editing them and, you know, uh, and so on. Uh, if only somebody had done that with all the secular, the non-religious texts, there's so much insight, wisdom, solace, inspiration in the non-religious writings of the world, the philosophies, the histories, the poetry, the, the letters. If somebody had done that and done the same thing and woven them together in that way, there would be this wonderful book, this Biblos. And if that had been the Bible of civilization, what a different civilization it would have been because it wouldn't have been about the punitive, angry God and hellfire for people who don't obey and so on. It would have been about, you know, the, the sort of humanistic things. And I thought, you know, somebody ought to do it. <laughs> anyway, so 35 years later, I, I, I produced it after a heck of a lot of work of, of you know, plundering all the, the literatures of the world, looking for all the stuff and weaving it together and, and doing it. And, and, the, I, and the, there's no mention in it, nowhere, of reward or punishment of gods or afterlives or hells or anything. It's just about 
human life in the here and now, human life in our world and in our relationships with one another. And there is so much which is, which is more interesting and deeper, more observant than you, you get from um, you know, a, 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 the, the, the kinds of prescriptions that, that a, a religion uh, demands of us or, 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 or says we should conform to. And if you think that, that uh, the reason why you would conform to a set of instructions by a deity is because you love the deity, well, what does that mean? I mean, that's a kind of empty phrase. You, know, you can love your dog. You, can, you know how they say men love their wives and wives love their children and children love their pets and so on. Well, we all know what love is in, in that sense. But to love God, you know, what does exactly that mean? Obey? Do you obey in order not to be punished, to, to get reward, to get into heaven? That's a, a very poor reason for treating other people well or, or being moral. In fact, just the intrinsic value of respecting other people and knowing that they can, knowing what makes people flourish and knowing what makes them suffer and responding to them accordingly is enough by itself to motivate our actions towards them. So the, the question that one asks religious people is, well, what does it add to, um, to, to believe uh, uh, in a God and to think that unless there were a God, you wouldn't act morally. What does it add? And in fact, doesn't it actually take something away? Because doesn't it mean that, that your acting morally is a matter of prudence to get a reward or to avoid punishment rather than the intrinsic value of acting that way? And that of course is what a humanist believes. I want to take a minute of your time to talk about supporting When Belief Dies. This will always be an advertisement-free podcast, and for that reason, I hope you will be willing to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, and check us out over on YouTube. Finally, I want to ask you to consider supporting the show financially. You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal. Everything that you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog and podcast. Take a look in the description for all the links, and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's episode. Yeah, that's that's really fantastic, and uh, I, I think that's that's really helpful to point out that just the sort of so much of the narrative coming out of uh, Christians and other forms of theism is is quite an aggressive claim of our system is right, yours can't be wrong, and actually turning that around to, well, actually, if we remove God and we try and draw out these ethics and uh, the various uh, social claims about how we should treat one another, is there anything left untouched? And I guess your argument, and certainly it would be my argument there uh, as well, that actually, no, um, I think we have everything we need to negotiate sort of good and prosperous lives for each of us. Yeah. We, we really, really do, actually. And quite a lot of what we need is something evolved into us. I mean, um, you know, they, they say don't they, that we share 50% of our genes with carrots. Well, we, we certainly share a hell of a lot more of our genes with every other human being on the planet. So we have an enormous amount in, in common. We're all, you know, kin. And we, we, we know there are very, very few people on the planet who like 
to be cold, hungry, alone, locked up in a little cage, uh, tortured, um, but, you know, denied opportunities. And the people who do like those things are weird. Okay, so we, we know what makes people unhappy and we know what makes them flourish. And that just tells us how we respond. By the way, notice that this the point that I'm making now flies in the face of a great uh, tradition in philosophy of thinking that you can't derive an ethical principle from a description of facts. Do you remember that stuff, the isort distinction, David Hume and all that? Well, I'm denying the isort distinction. I'm saying you can describe certain things about how humans suffer and, and how they flourish. And on that basis, you can see something about how we're meant to respond to them. And when I said a moment ago, we, we have more, more than just tradition, history, and, and reflection to help us here. We are evolutionarily um, disposed to wince when we see somebody else in pain uh, or, or to laugh when somebody else laughs or to yawn when we see them yawning. You know, our mirror neurons are at work there. We can understand these things. There's a marvelous thing that was doing the rounds on, on the internet a year or two ago of um, th there was an, a, a case of a professional baseball, uh, basketball player in America who was hit on the side of the head by a basketball and his eye popped out. Now, what, what this thing on the internet, just looking at your expression there, Daniel, what, what, what this thing on the internet showed was, was not the eye popping out, but the faces of people seeing the eye popping out. And practically everybody who saw it went, oh, God, like this, it was a horrible thing to happen. Now, why would they be responding in this or thinking what an awful thing that is, unless there was some neurological basis for our capacity to sympathize with other people and to respond to them according to the situation that they're in? We have to work pretty hard, you know, to, to stifle our feelings, to turn the boats of refugees back to the French coast or to do whatever it takes, you know, to be unkind, unwelcoming um, to, to other human beings. And I think to myself, I remember when my youngest daughter was uh, um, first at kindergarten at a, in a central London school where 36 different languages were spoken in the school. So it was an incredibly cosmopolitan place. And this little kindergarten class had, you know, just every uh, cultural background and ethnicity and language background and everything that you could think of. And those little kids, they were all four-year-olds in there, they were making no distinctions between anybody and anybody else. They were just all kids playing together. And I was thinking to myself, oh God, what a lot of hard work we've got to put into teaching them that they're different from one another and somehow or other that they can treat them differently on that basis. That's that, you know, that's the one of the crimes we commit uh, in, in the, the, the way we think about uh, um, things in society. And if we were much, much more open and more natural, this kind of humanistic thing, and we're all part of the same family, it wouldn't even occur to us, I think, to, to think in those ways. So I guess just to take this up to then the political level and sort of how we interact as a, a society and what we're uh, and what we're doing there. Do we, in engaging with various uh, Christians and other theistic beliefs that are sort of influencing society and influencing our institutions, uh, where should that debate take place? Should we be uh, arguing around the metaphysics and showing actually these ideas of gods just don't seem to make sense? Uh, they're structurally flawed. They, they don't add up. Is it a question of 
well, so long as we can agree on the ethics of how we should live our lives and, and come to some negotiation there, we can be fine and allow for far more pluralism and diff- various different religious beliefs and, and different ideologies, as you sort of mentioned uh, elsewhere. Um, or is it purely on sort of uh, some, some form of secularism where we say, actually, we need to make sure that our institutions are neutral uh, to these various beliefs? Where, where do you think the... Uh, debate, especially in today's society, should really focus in on? Well, in socio-political terms, it's very much in the arena of of the the, the secularism issue. I mean, you've picked up there on the important distinction between the theism, atheism stuff, which is about what exists and doesn't exist, that's metaphysics, and we've just been talking about the ethical, so that's where humanism comes into the picture. But uh, the, the, the secularist is a person who says that the, the public square, the public domain, is one where everybody has a right to exist, everybody has a right to put their point of view uh, and to, to make their claims, but they have no more right than anybody else to, to be heard, um, uh, apart from the strength of the argument that they can push, or you know, if we're in a democracy, the numbers of people who support that view. So, um, for for historical reasons, of course, we've got an established church in England. Uh, we've got 26 bishops allowed to sit in the House of Lords and more who become life peers after they cease to be bishops and archbishops, who vote on laws that apply to everybody, no matter what their religion or whether they have one or not. This is distorting in itself. Um, of, of course, the Church of England bishops tend to be very careful not to overstep the mark a little bit because then they lose their purchase there. But the short, in short, um, religion, all the religions get a, you know, a place at the top table and at the head of the queue out of all proportion to their actual importance or support in society. Now, I would say, and I often do, that uh, in round numbers, the percentage of the population of these islands who go regularly, perhaps you know, sort of on a weekly basis, to a church or a temple or a synagogue or a mosque, probably about 10% of the population. Uh, and yet, um, the, the, the sort of degree of, 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 uh, uh, of wattage given to the microphones, to, to, to the amplifiers of, of these uh, religious voices is out of all proportion to that. We are functionally a secular uh, state, despite one part of it being uh, um, having a, an established church. We're functionally a secular state. We're very diverse. No, no group of people uh, ever has a natural majority of anything in it because any group of people is always just a coalition of minorities with different interests and needs. And that fact should be respected, which is why it's so important that the domain should be secular. So, of course, you know, let the religions and the churches and so forth uh, exist and have their say, they've got every right, but they should see themselves to what they are. They're interest groups, they're lobby groups. And they should take their turn in the queue along with everybody else. And if, in fact, like the Church of England, you know, only two or three percent of the population is actually actively, regularly a member of the Church of England, uh, or though many culturally uh, identif- self-identify as CAB in, in censuses and so on, but given given that very small active population, they don't have a right to such overrepresentation in Parliament or in the public square. That's the point that I think a secularist would and should make. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I, I kind of, um, it's 
potentially a little bit of a curveball and if it's something you want to leave and, and, and move on from then that's fine but um I, I recently read a book by douglas murray um looking at islam essentially um and the sort of um is uh, so the, the two terms used there is um islamophobia which is the fear of islam and um islamophilia which is the sort of unconditional uncritical love of islam um and i kind of we've definitely seen christianity obviously rise to dominance within the uk and we believe we're going to see it peter out over time um but we are also seeing this sort of kind of um this unquestioning um, yield to the sort of demands of Islam say uh, you know someone recently quite near where I lived showed a picture of the um, I think some of the you know the cartoons um, of the prophet uh, prophet Muhammad um, and uh, for, for educational purposes and then you know this person had to go into hiding fear for their life the school shut down for a couple of weeks it was just you know every news station was there filming this entire thing it's it's a, it's a tiny tiny little village it, it shouldn't have become the sort of thing it became but it became like a national controversy almost and um, you know we saw the kind of pro and the anti people coming out of the out of the woodwork as well and i find that religion in general seems to um be something people are very very scared to criticize and very unwilling to um somehow overcome this this backlash and i kind of wonder could you could you obviously we kind of touched on christianity but it'd be fascinating to get your your your, your take on kind of current day um islamophobia islamophilia and the sort of way that we view islam within yeah the uk Sure. Okay. Well, so I take the view that that, uh, and and it's, it's a view that surprises some people. I think that that uh, re religion and religious observance in the world as a whole is in decline and in retreat, despite appearances, because it looks as though you know uh, uh, Islam is becoming much more assertive and and uh, uh, aspects of it much more aggressive, and um, the, the mega churches in this. Bible Belt in, in the United States and the big um, uh, churches in Nigeria, places like that, you know, people say, no, uh, religion is, is resurgent. It's not, it's not on the back foot. I think it is in the back foot. I, I think the reason why fundamentalists and especially fundamentalists in Islam, because there's a particular reason why this is so, are so aggressive and assertive is because, well, this is what happens when you're backed into a corner. I mean, if you back an animal into a corner, it's going to be, you know, it's going to get fierce and, and, and want to fight back. And so if you're under pressure, if you're in retreat in the face of sec global secularization, then you might become more noisy. The voice, the noise level will go up and the activism level will go up and it will make it seem as though you're being resurgent when actually this is a manifestation, a symptom of fear and anxiety. And I think that's what's happening. In Muslim majority countries around the world and in Muslim communities, you can imagine um, what, what the secularizing pressure of, of history uh, is feels like. If you're a conservative Muslim, you're worried about your daughters, you see movies with naked girls and people humping one another and all that. Of course, you feel you know, tremendously kind of threatened by, by that. And maybe you as, as a father uh, you know, of, of, um, of, of daughters and anxious for them and what the modern world would mean for them, maybe you won't do, do anything about it, but maybe your sons will. Maybe they'll get angry. Maybe they'll, they'll want to fight back and kick back at something that they regard as insulting them or disrespecting their lifestyle or their parents' lifestyle and so on. Now, as we speak, and uh, I know this is going to go later than, than today, but we're, we're, we're speaking to one another in, in September 2021. And very soon, the trial is going to begin in um, Paris of those people who were involved in the terrorist atrocities in Paris on the 13th of November, 2015, the Bataclan thing. Now you remember, 
there were some explosions outside the Stade de France, and then there were some people gunned down at cafes, uh, you know, on the terrace. And then there was a terrible, terrible atrocity of people just being mowed down by machine gun fire, Kalashnikov fire, in the Bataclan concert hall. You remember that? And by the way, there is a brilliant and incredibly moving uh, documentary on Netflix. Uh, three-part uh, documentary on uh, the talking to Bataclan and uh, cafe survivors of these massacres. But these guys who committed this brutal act of just indiscriminately murdering dozens of people was motivated by what one of the things they claimed anyway, but by, by their response to their prophet being insulted. Now, we're all perfectly aware that civilians are being killed by US drones and, and uh, Syrian and Russian jets and, and French and British forces in Syria and Iraq and so on. So, you know, this, the bitter conflict between a medieval worldview, which is Islam and capitalism on, on the other hand, protecting its uh, oil resources, you know, it's horrible that, that it's happening and nobody's death, no, no you know, conflict is, is acceptable. But I have to say that uh, to indiscriminately murder people because they've insulted something that you believe in, they don't uh, insult. I mean, it's so it's sort of infantile that the, the response. And it's an, in, and religion generally, and more fundamentalist religion, the more so. Religion generally is infantilizing. It, it makes people mindless and unthinking, and, and uh, you know you cannot really it's very hard to hate an individual human being. Very easy to hate a whole group of people like the Jews or the Muslims or whoever it might be. Uh, uh, and even more easy to do so if you're a member of a group that does the hating. So all the polarization and division and identity um, stuff that goes with the tribalism of saying, I'm a, I'm a somethingism or I'm a somethingist, and therefore people who want this, uh, you know, the other, uh, that they just scum and therefore I can just murder them and, and so on. All, all that is just too vile and horrible. And it's the worst thing about our world. Now, because of the current, the, this moment, this historical moment, which is when globalization has really, really taken off. You know, globalization began when the Portuguese sailors first set off down the coast of Africa back in the 15th century. But it has really taken off with cheap air travel and the internet just in the last few decades. And that, you know, with the globalizing of secularization in, in our world has really pressed up against an inflamed uh, and irritated sensibilities around the world and put whole communities and whole faith groups under a great deal of, of pressure. And this is where all this is coming from. But as I say, I think it is a symptom of the of the retreat of, of religion in our world. Now, religion is not going to vanish. You know, the human mind is an archaeology, is a geology of strata. There's still people who check out their astrological forecasts and so on today. You know, and that's never going to go away. And neither is religion. The whole point about secularism is believe what you like, but don't let it impact anybody else. That's your uh, business. You know, don't force it on other people or, or let it change you know, or, or result in harm to, to other people. That's what the secularist says about religion. And that's the most and the best we can hope for. But remember that until the 17th century, religion and the religious worldview was functionally dominant. It controlled people's lives. Now, the secular scientific humanistic worldview is 
functionally dominant, even though in absolute number terms, there are still more people who believe in various gods and religious superstitions and things than there are, people, than there are atheists. Even though actually there are quite a large number of atheists in the world now, and it's increasing. I don't want to go on too long, but I'll just end on this point. In the Muslim world itself, uh, in, and there are things about Muslim art and, and Muslim poetry and even the poetry of the Quran itself, uh, which, which are wonderful, like we were saying earlier, you know, that the art and music and poetry don't have to be associated with religion. They are sometimes, and if they are, they can still be beautiful and, and so forth. But in, in the Muslim world itself and in Muslim majority countries, there are plenty of people who don't believe, who, who are atheists, who can't say so, who keep on being orthopractic, that is, behaving as Muslims, because, you know, the conflict with families and, and with their society, uh, or even in some cases, the danger, like in Pakistan or in Afghanistan, maybe under the Taliban now, of not being orthopractic is too great. But there are plenty of people who would, if they could, you know, like to, to live a life which is much freer of the oppressive, confining, restricting uh, um, uh, aspect of, of having to be a, a believer and an observer. So, you know, if, if we were able, if I, I wish the stem cell guys would hurry up and you know, conquer all the problems of aging and so on, because I wouldn't mind being around in 50 or 100 years time, if we can survive climate change and nuclear war, uh, then I would just really like to see where religion is then, because I think we're living through a moment of particular inflammation because globalization has reached a peak and we've got, as it were, sort of you know, peak irritation from a major uh, religion in the world, which is being really pressed by that secularizing process. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, obviously even uh, coming out of Christianity myself and, and that journey was incredibly difficult, but at no point was I worried necessarily of some of the significant levels of backlash that I know uh, many Muslim apostates have, have faced and, you know, even some Christians in the deep south of the US um, where, you know, I think you were mentioning earlier sort of the backlash of uh, a diminishing uh, minority, which I think is true uh, about the, especially the white evangelical movement in the US, um, is is deeply disturbing to them, and it causes so many more problems for those that are trying to leave um, and trying to get out of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's heartbreaking, and I think it would just be uh, really good as 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 we're concluding. I mean, obviously, especially as you're saying, you know. Uh, secularism seems to have uh, really won over some of the key institutions, but there's still this cultural Christianity. Uh, there's still some of these artifacts of Christian ideology that, that run through our culture. Uh, do you think it's a case of, you know, we can accept some of these things uh, and say, you know, thanks for all the various philosophical, archaeological cultural benefits that you've given over the years but you know so long and thanks for the fish we're going into this post-christian society um 
do you think we really need to root it out and some of the problems that it's it still creates and even within atheist agnostic secular minds there's still some things of christian thought that are sort of rooted deep down um do you have any thoughts around that i do indeed yeah so uh, one reason why i was mentioning the the good book thing that i was talking about earlier was that w w when it was published i i asked the then archbishop of uh, uh, canterbury uh, uh, Williams, who, who uh, owed me because he'd asked me to do a double header with him on his book about Dostoevsky and Dostoevsky's sort of rather interesting take on Christianity. And so um, uh, he, Rowan Williams and I did a thing together at the Pushkin Institute on Dostoevsky. So I, I said to him, okay, I've got this secular Bible coming out and now you owe me, so you would have come and do a double header with me about it, which we did at the Royal Festival Hall in front of a very, very big audience there at the Royal Festival Hall. And we, we, it was a, an hour long session. And for 20, uh, for, for um, uh, all but the last five minutes of that hour, we agreed about everything. We agreed about everything to do with, um, you know, uh, our, our moral responsibilities towards one another, with the great importance of kindness, with, uh, you know, which I, I think is one of the central um, humanistic virtues is kindness, being kind to, to, to other people being generous to, to other people in, in the sort of, um, uh, um, not just the money sense, but in the sense of giving them the space to be who they are. And we agreed about everything. And it was only in the last five minutes that the word God was mentioned. Now, I think this is a very striking fact because we and really well-intentioned uh, Christians who've picked all the white cherries <laughs> can agree on a huge amount. We can agree on a huge amount and we don't have to invoke the gods uh, to, to do it. And we can enjoy many of the same things. I can enjoy, you know, um, Bach's uh, uh, mass in B minor and, and you know, uh, religious art. So we can share a lot and we can agree on a lot and we don't have to keep drag the gods kicking and squealing into the debate because when we do, usually, of course, uh, things tend to go wrong. It's a bit like the injunction at dinner parties, don't talk religion, politics, or sex, and talk about anything else. So try and keep religion out of the picture. So th th there is that. But it does have to be said uh, that uh, um, Sam Harris, in his book, um, I forget what it's called now, his very first, first book. The End of Faith. The End of Faith, that's it, sorry, yes. Um, Sam makes a very good point in that book, which he says that the the kind, gentle face of mainstream cherry-picking religion is the cover for a long tail, which at the other end is the, are the people who will murder you because you don't agree with them. That's the problem with religion. That's the problem with teaching our children a falsehood about the nature of the universe. You know, when, in your email to me, uh, you, you had framed a question, of why, why don't you believe in God? And I, when I was thinking about what response I would give to that, uh, my, my immediate reaction was to say, we've got to step back from the, the wrong way of asking that question. The way to ask that question is, do you think there's anything in the universe, are there any supernatural entities or agencies in the universe or somehow associated with the universe and influential with regard to it? Because to ask, do you believe in, you know, capital G, God, as if it were a name, because I used to say to, to, to my kids when they got into arguments with people, 
and I've brought up my youngest daughter as an atheist. And my wife used to say to me, well, she's going to end up as a mother abbess, you know, because, you know, kids are like, they would always end up the opposite of what you bring them up at. I said, well, at least I'm going to try because everybody else is brought up as religious. So I would say to her, look, when, when people uh, engage you in discussions about this matter, don't ever use the word God. Use the phrase gods and goddesses. So you say, I don't believe in gods and goddesses. Why do you believe that there are gods and goddesses? Why, you know, it's completely arbitrary that there should be only one or only seven or only 12 or something. It's just arbitrary. On what grounds? The same grounds as, as you have for thinking about fairies. You know, it's all legends and, and stories. It's exactly the same evidential basis. But also, I, I said, uh, try people out on this. Instead of using the name God with a capital G, always use the name Fred with a capital F. So I so say, who created the universe? Fred. And the minute you say that, you think, okay, that's a completely empty and vacuous thing to say. So you say, who created the universe? God. That's a completely empty and vacuous thing to say. It's no different from saying that Fred created it. Who the hell is Fred? Where did Fred pop up from? You know, I mean, that, that kind of question should be, should immediately press. And it does if you, if you get the question framed correctly. But to try to you know, wrap up on, on, on answering that question you asked me, we share a great deal in common, all well-intentioned people, no matter what they think their motivation is. Because uh, uh, you, you could point out to your, your Christian friends the following fact, that when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, as I said earlier, towards the end of the fourth century of the Common Era, uh, it needed... It needed to import quite a lot of stuff because in the scriptures, if you ask the question, uh, how should, what shall I do to, to be saved? The answer is give away all your money. Take no thought for tomorrow. You make no plans. Don't marry. You know, this is because the Messiah is coming back this weekend or, or next week or anyway in November. So, you, of course, you don't make plans. You don't have a family. You don't need money. The centuries went by and they thought, uh, well, we need a bit more, you know, here about what, what, how to live a good life, okay? Every morality, every ethics, every religion has said, uh, look after the widows and orphans, you know, be a good neighbor. They all do. So there's nothing special to Christianity there. What was special to Christianity was run away to the desert, uh, cut off your testicles like Oregon or, you know, do something anyway that's going to save you uh, when the Messiah comes, okay? So they had to import a whole raft of, of uh, ethical principles, which they did mainly from Stoicism, because the late Stoics, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, were just ripe for being used by, by the Christians as a resource for ethical thinking. A lot of Christian ethics is Greek philosophical ethics and nothing to do with religion. Moreover, they also imported around about that time, because this is the time of St. Augustine, they also imported about that time a big hefty tranche of metaphysics because in the early Christian um, church, the early Christians were Jews, uh, you know, the Jerusalem Christians were anyway, and they believed as Jews did that when you die, you, you, you lie in the grave until the Messiah comes, at which time you resurrect. So Paul said, uh, we, will, we will rise from the grave with a new body. I always joke to people and say, I want a suntan and a six pack and stuff, you know, you, with, a, with a new body. But then, uh, and he also said, the saints shall see no corruption, meaning that those who died as martyrs, those who died in the faith will not rot in the grave. But when 
Christianity became the official religion and they dug up the martyrs to put their relics in the churches to perform miracles. They found they had rotted. There's nothing left but bones. That was a bit embarrassing. You remember in Dostoevsky, um, Father Zosima and Brothers Karamazov, all the peasants thought he must be a saint, but he died on a summer's day and within a very short time, he'd started to smell and they realized that was corrupting. So he wasn't a saint. You remember that episode? Well, here was a problem for the early Christians. So they had to import from Neoplatonism the Platonic idea of the immortal soul, which had been no part of Christianity up until that point, that you have a soul that goes to heaven when your body is buried. So, I mean, the whole thing is just made up as it went along. And you, when you point these things out to people, they're a bit surprised because most people, for very good reason, the church doesn't advertise or it's having you know, second thoughts and having to make things up. But uh, when you point these things out to people, it does surprise them a little bit. So the main thing you can say is, look, we share a huge amount in common. And you know why? Because most of Christian ethics comes from Greek philosophy, Greek non-religious philosophical ethics. The very idea of the Christian personality, the Christian gentleman, where does that come from? It comes from Aristotle's conception of the megalopsychos. Megalopsychos, which in Latin is magna anima, from which we get our word magnanimous, the great soul. The, well, the, the generous person, the kind person. That, that is a fundamentally Aristotelian conception. It has nothing to do with Christianity, but it was brought into Christianity because when all those guys had been out there in the desert for a couple of centuries and the Messiah hadn't turned up, you know, they get back into civil life and in society, you need something a bit richer than give away all your money. So uh, rather than uh, the uh, cry of many Christian apologists that humanism is just stealing from Christianity, Christianity <laughs> has stolen just as much from humanism, <laughs> if anything. You got around, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Got around, yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, Professor Grayling, thank you very much for, that, for coming on and talking to us about some of these things. Uh, obviously, these are big questions that we've had for quite some time, and uh, your comments uh, and insights into this has been really, really helpful uh, for us to listen to. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To leave any comments or thoughts, you can head over to YouTube. And to follow us on social media or to see where else we are online, hit the link in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality. I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey.